Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. With COVID still causing disruption around the world, we're now being hit with shortages and with that inflation. The Federal Reserve and other central banks are saying it's only transitory, so don't worry about it. Prices will stop growing as quickly soon. But are they right on that? Or will shortages be with us for some time? And if so, who suffers the most? We know it's not going to be the supremely wealthy. So how do we stop the recovery being one that makes life much more expensive for those who can least afford it? Is inflation the next pandemic? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, COVID is taking a long time to go away, isn't it? Around the world, there's still half a million new cases a day. Uh, They're just the ones we know about, of course. You know, there'll be a lot in Africa and other parts of the world that we don't know about. There's almost 10 million active cases that we do know about in the United States. So one in 30 people in the United States right now have it. Now, the vaccine does seem to be helping. Uh, Somewhere around 150 people a day are dying from it in the UK. Back in January, before we all had the vaccine, that number is around 1,800. So that's a hell of a difference. But still, 1.3 million people are infected in the UK. That is 70% of that January peak. So it's still around. So even with the infections and the vaccinations, people are still getting sick. And in America... Well over 8 million people out of work compared with 5 million before the pandemic. So 3 million to go before they get back to where they were. Uh, And yet, you know, they probably would have thought 5 million unemployed wasn't a staggering figure anyway. And yet central banks are making noises about getting back to normal, easing off quantitative easing, lifting interest rates. Not immediately in most cases, but they are talking about their roadmap. In New Zealand, they are about to to lift interest rates. The Norges Bank uh, in Norway has lifted interest rates. So, Steve, at the the last meeting, the the Bank of England made noises about lifting rates because they were worried about inflation. But we all know why prices are rising in the United Kingdom. I mean, are they living on a different planet? Uh, Yeah, planet neoclassical. (laughs) That's the problem. It's been interesting to watch Danny Blanchflower, actually, if you ever ever uh, read Danny Blanchflower's stuff on Twitter. He was a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. And... uh, I'm not sure of Danny's actual uh, intellectual background. He's clearly an economist, but he is is not a slave into the mainstream way of thinking. And he just rubbishes Mervyn King and everybody else on the committee. I think, with one exception, uh, having their heads in the in the text in the in the textbook clouds rather than their feet on the real world ground. And in 2008, putting up interest rates because they thought there was a uh, they had to restrain runaway inflation. Well, of course, what hit them was the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression. So their, their capacity to see what their models tell them is going to happen rather than what's happening in the real world. And, and if I were to see what's happening in credit markets because the blinkers 
that are welded onto the heads of neoclassical economists in first year at university uh, is amazing. So yeah, they live on a different planet. But you don't have to be an a- academic to figure this out. I mean, we've got uh, supply chains. No, but it helps not. It helps not <laughs> to, to be one to figure. Well, it yeah, out. I think you know the the man in the street will be getting confused by this because they'd be looking and going, okay, so we've got supply chains disrupted uh, globally. On on top of that, we've got a shortage of drivers locally. Oh. Uh, so we are actually seeing food disappearing from shelves. It's certainly pushing up food oh. prices. Then we've got food not being picked because we've not got enough itinerant workers because of people like you, Steve Keen, arguing that we should leave Brexit, leave, leave Europe. Mm. Uh, then we've got uh-huh. energy. <laughs> I'm always going to dig that one in. Uh, then we've got, um, how's it working out for you, by the way? Then we've got uh, energy prices <laughs> rising. <laughs> Pretty well over in Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. If you're not in this country, absolutely. Um, energy prices rising, of course, astronomically. Tax rises to come. We've got the IR35 rules. So self-employed mm. workers basically broadly now pay the same income tax and national insurance contributions, which is, uh, in effect, a price hike for a, a, a wage cut, I should say, for those people um, uh, who are not directly employed. Add to all of that an interest rate rise, then the economy, re- I mean, it's just like we've got a perfect storm already. Let's just make matters worse. I mean, most people would say, are they nuts? Well, the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> so is it that? Or because, as you know, I uh, also do a podcast every day for the National Australia Bank, the NAB Morning Call, uh, and I talk to analysts from the bank. Their read on all of this is that the the, the Bank of England is just uh, talking the talk, but they're never going to walk the walk. In other words, they're going to tell people uh, that this is what they're thinking of, but it's ne- it's never going to happen. They're really just trying to pacify the markets or pacify the neoclassical uh, economists, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, there's an interesting division in in. Central Central banks between the board and the um, and the research staff. Sometimes, mm. uh, like in the American system, it seems that the research staff become the board. Uh, you get people like you know Ben Bernanke, who's a professor of economics and wrote you know, he writes still today writes one, I don't know he's still publishing, but he writes one of the leading uh, textbooks. Uh, becomes the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Greenspan was actually an exception on that front. He was uh, you know a, a Wall Street. Uh, uh, speculator, not uh, not not an academic, but uh, Yellen is another person who was an academic. So uh, in America, the academics get to run the show. In uh, UK, it seems to be sort of uh, well-respected members of the uh, of the the City of London who get to run the place, but um, they are normally trained in mainstream economics anyway. Uh, and sometimes why they got the position there is because that's recognised by the people who uh, who nominate them. So yeah, they're wearing they're wearing a set of blinkers, and the thing, blinker tells them that everything is driven by what they call inflationary expectations. And uh, they say, oh, there's going to be a rise in expectations of inflation, and that will cause a rise in inflation. So we have to put up interest rates twice as fast. As the as the expectations are rising, and that'll push them back the other direction. Right, irrespective of what's actually happening right now. But I guess the people are looking at all of those things, and would be saying, "Oh, well, prices are going to go. Prices have gone up. Prices are going to go up even more." And so, what they're saying, well, okay, if you've got that, I mean, I can sort of half understand their logic. If you've got a whole load of people saying, well, look, prices are bad, but they're going to get worse, and they go, well, i tell you what, we're going to stop them getting worse because we're going to tell you that we're going to do this, and that will keep mm. prices subdued, then people might go, oh, well, that's not so bad then, and then maybe they don't have to actually lift rates. Just the, I mean, that would be, I've heard this argument before, just the threat that they're going to do it makes people uh, uh, lower their expectations for inflation, therefore that doesn't happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's a twisted logic, but you could sort of, like, behaviourally, you could see that sort of thing happening. That, that's what they're doing. But, I mean, again, when you look at uh, all this stuff, you've got to go back to Milton, bloody Friedman, mm. uh, and the original paper he wrote called The Optimum, Optimum Quantity of Money, uh, back, in, I think, in 1953. And 
uh, essential part of that argument was that you would have inflation with absolutely no um, um, change. It had been equilibrium with inflation. And uh, the idea was that it, it, like normally you think inflation is actual prices rising and people look at actual prices and then they realise there's inflation and then... Um, and then you are in a non-equilibrium position and then the inflation pushes you back into equilibrium again. That's the sort of way that neoclassicals used to think before Friedman turned up. Uh, and what he did in this paper is say, well, just imagine there's a helicopter flying over the country. Um, and if, it, if you start with a thousand, literally one thousand, one dollar notes, okay? I'll, I'll use one pound, but you know, one thousand dollar, one pound, whatever, flying over the country. Uh, there's a thousand pounds in circulation, which are notes labelled, this is one dollar each, one thousand of them. And then one day a helicopter flies over the country and drops another thousand notes. Now, mm. um, the, the, po the point that he left out of the logic board would have to be a, f a Federal Reserve or a Bank of England helicopter because they dropped over the country uh, they'd, they'd be forgery. But his, right, okay, but his point was, if that kept on happening, then you, you start to assume well, it was going he, to keep, just, keep on happening and therefore you'd devalue, you'd assume well, money's worth less. Yeah, people grab them, grab them uh, pick them up initially, think there's been an increase in demand because there are more pieces of paper fly, flying around, uh, but ultimately uh, return to the original full employment equilibrium. And this is the nonsense thing in thinking. He presumes that Keynesian-style policies, which is what he's attacking in this paper, are trying to drive the employment rate below the market equilibrium where the market equilibrium is actually an optimum. So we're not talking, you know, thinking in terms of Great Depression, 30% of the workforce out of a job, which is where Keynesian policies actually began. And only a lunatic, uh, his name, by the way, is, Kittland, is, uh, is, is, is uh, Finn Kittland and Edward Prescott, only lunatics would think that was an equilibrium situation. Um, and therefore, you're well and truly away from where you, you know, much higher unemployment than the market would give if the market was functioning properly. And then you therefore boost demand to get you to the point where the un unemployment falls. That's, that's the world of the actual way in which uh, um, situation in which Keynes's ideas became uh, the mainstream. But uh, he just says, let's assume we're in full employment. <laughs> and then the government tries to give us over full employment. Uh, mm. Well, gee, that'll cause inflation. Well, there's, there's not an economist on the planet who would disagree with that, but it's the assumption you start from the optimum and, they, and, and they're push, try to push past the optimum. That's the nonsense bit, that, you know, the slate of what? hand that Friedman yeah. dropped in. His yeah. natural rate of unemployment. And, and the question is, what is that? Because if you look at, you know, the, what is, the Nauru, what is it? It's the mm. non-accelerating inflation rate of employment, Nauru. Unemployment. Yeah, unemployment, Nauru, I should yeah. say, sorry, which was uh, over 7% um, back in the 80s. Uh, it's uh, been, you know, around 5% for quite a while. You know, the unemployment rate in, uh, in, in the US now is 5.2%. So, you know, you could say, job done. I mean, there's 8 million people out of work, uh, but you, mm. you could say, look, the job's been done yeah. by the Fed because they've, the, the, they've the, lowered the, their Nauru the, and it's all good the, now. But, yeah, but the point, the point is he, set, he, he snuck in this idea that expectations cause rising prices. Mm. That, that was the trick um, in, that, in that writing. And he said, therefore, you've got to break those expectations. Now, the people who follow him were even more, even more lunatic than Friedman. Well, that's why I mentioned Finn uh, Kidland and Edward Prescott, who gave us what are called real business cycle models. And they went even further and argued that 
even the things like the Great Depression were an equilibrium reaction of the workforce to some change in labour regulations. So people voluntarily worked less, and that's what we recorded during the, during the Great Depression as a rise in unemployment, because they decided it wasn't worth their while to go and work at the offering wage, so they might as well go back to their farms and their, their personal workshops and make their own stuff for themselves. Delusional garbage, but this is what becomes pumped into the heads of mainstream economic thinkers, and they are the ones who end up making the decisions for, um, for, for central banks. So they're looking, they're looking at the, the real world. The rest of us are taking into account things like you know, massive levels of private debt, uh, obvious supply chain disruptions, uh, uh, potential approach of climate change, all this sort of stuff, and saying, well, this is not a situation of rampant aggregate demand dragging up prices. Um, it's, it's, and and if, you, if you have this situation uh, where it's supply chain disruptions that are causing the rising prices and you then hit the market with something which actually reduces aggregate demand, you're not going to cause an um, adjustment just to the price system. You're going to crash demand itself. Mm. And, and this is the, <clears throat> the fear that a lot of us have. This, this, this sort of thing will end up causing a slump. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, well, I mean, and, so look, too, yeah. and, and I don't know how how you position yourself because Jerome Powell from the from mm. the Fed, in his uh, chair of the Fed, in his defence, is saying this is the inflation that we're seeing is all transitory. So it and it, mm. it is all driven by supply constraints. So my reaction to that would be, well, okay, inflation is going higher and higher and higher, but it's transitory. Mm. Jerome Powell is telling me in a year's time uh, it will have all gone away. So guess what? I'm not going to spend money on stuff. Right now, I might negotiate for a, a higher wage in the short term, um, but the stuff that I really want to buy, particularly big items, I'll leave it till next year when inflation has uh, has gone away. But that that subduing, yeah. so he's he's trying to get himself over that path. But he is subduing demand by his words, and I think we're seeing a bit of that already in the U.S. economy. No, I mean it's the difficult thing with uh, the situation we're in, in now. When I look back at the seventies. The thing which was special about the 70s was, first of all, there was an absolute gangbusters boom going on. 1973 was possibly the peak level for economic activity on the planet in terms of how much of the workforce was employed and, and how slack, how little slack there was in the productive sectors of the economy. Uh, and then you had a supply shock from uh, the, uh, after the Yom Kippur War, the blockade that um, the OPEC put on supporters of Israel, uh, which meant you had a quadrupling of the oil price from $2.50 a barrel to 10 mm. uh, And that happened, and there's another one again, which is more market-driven uh, in 79, it went from 10 to 40 um, And then at that stage, because that, so that, that was a supply-driven inflation hit. But at the same time, you had um, a far lower level of, of private debt Still high, um, but what it meant was that corporations who were you know, coping with a very, very high level of demand in the economy were willing to extend their lines of credit to pay the higher prices for the oil. And then you had tra- workers organised into trade unions. They still existed in America back then. Uh, who would use the very high demand for um, labour at the time to demand a continuing wage rises. And then you had this huge um the 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 flow through from the supply pressure pushing up prices became demand pressure pushing up prices and you got the classic uh you know demands demand uh, uh, supply pu- push demand pull 
inflationary spiral that gave us the the high inflation up to about, I think, about 17% per year in America before Vokler got in charge. So, So that was the situation back then. And when Vokler hit the brakes, he put the interest rates up to something, I think it was 20%, was huge. Um, in that situation, in that in that environment, and what that meant was that thumped investment. So, like normal, I will normally say the trade is pretty much irrelevant to the rate of investment. But you whack it up from you know twelve percent to twenty percent, mm. uh, the sort of change we went through. Bang! That'll say people, we're not going to take, we're not, we're not going to repay this debt quite possibly. So, bang! Investment collapses, and then what you've got is this momentum still of the supply d- demand cycle of price rises still in the system but you've hit the mo- economy in, in literally in the guts uh, with the interest rate rise and investment collapses so then you've got rising prices and falling economically otherwise known as stagflation yeah yeah uh, and, and that, well, because yeah um, because you've not yeah. got the capex going so production um yeah production's cut so uh, you know arguably prices will go even higher because there's less of what people yeah. are demanding and and then demand will eventually fall because people are going well it's too bloody expensive anyway and in one thing which, coming from a non-neoclassical perspective on everything, uh, the, 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 the non-mainstream argument about what inflation actually involves from is effectively class struggle. Uh, you, so the, main, the, the, the neoclassical say it's expectations of inflation with these representative agents, all this nonsense stuff that they, fantasy stuff that they think is hard-nosed, they fill their models with. Uh, from a post-Keynesian, just right out to Marx's point of view, you've got a struggle between workers and capitalists and bankers over the distribution of income. And if that can't be resolved at current prices, then current prices rise uh, because the w- workers putting up their wages meets capitalists who put up their wages without, uh, put up their, their, their uh, prices without reducing their margins because they're confident they can still sell at the higher prices. Uh, now, the situation we're in now, uh, I don't think there'd, there'd, there'd be plenty of manufacturers out there who've got supply pressure forcing them to put up prices. Are they confident they're going to get the demand to meet them? No. No. So you, 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 you therefore have a potential for them to cut their margin uh, rather than rather than put up the prices, and that will mean first of all you dampen out the the rise in inflation, and secondly the 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 problem is income distribution. Um, and so with a, 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 work, a weakened working class, no unions to help organise them. Yeah. Initially, they might get the wage rises, uh, but they're all in a living hand-to-mouth. Well, will they uh, get those wage rises or will, where, you know, where the companies are saying, well, let's try and ride inflation by cutting costs. They so, will we'll cut costs because we won't put up uh, wages as much. And people are, you know, we've got un- yeah. un- unemployment drive, so people haven't got any negotiating power. Well, I haven't got a union or, anyway. Or- or they try to cut their margins as well as survive with a lower margin. So, but but what what you'll get out of it, is, I, I think we'll actually see lots and lots of price rises coming out of it. But the impact of the price rises will be that those products are no longer something workers can put in their shopping basket. Yeah. So demand's going to fall. And so, yeah, yeah, and 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 but you'll record it. See, initially you'll record it as a high rate of inflation because you'll have a a distribution of income that determines a certain pattern of commodity purchases and that's the basket that goes together to make up the consumer price index. Mm. Then if this if this means this workers simply no, can no longer afford to buy a car every, let's say, 10 years and they've got to make it every 15 or 20 in, in their calculations and a whole lot of other stuff that just has to go out of the shopping basket, uh, then you'll still be recording the inflation but 
uh, it'll actually be manifest as a, as a drop in demand for these these yeah. items. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately, you have to readjust it. Oh, dear, we overcalculated the rate of inflation back when the crisis was hitting. Right. But it's volume of goods sold, which is going to be the thing that's going to take the hit, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. It's going, to be, it's going to hit a quantity effect, not a price effect. And they're used to living in a world where uh, all this stuff to determine price effects while quantities are independent. So, but you describe the scenario where you get spiralling upwards inflation, where you know prices prices of goods go up. Workers say, "Well, we've got to pay more so we can afford those things." That pushes labour costs up. That pus- mm. pushes the cost of goods up. So, therefore, they go, hey, "Hey, look, we need more money again," and so it goes onwards, upwards, and upwards. How do you break that spiral? I mean, you know, some people would say it's already broken. This is the point. It's already broken because, uh, because because people can't negotiate to increase their wages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be, yeah because you, I mean, you don't have the. You know, if I mention the Teamsters, people are going to think I'm talking about a rock group these days. Um, you know, the, the, the strong labour organisations like the Teamsters uh, in the USA, um, the Amalgamated Metal Workers, which I've occasionally worked uh, done consulting for in Australia. Um, all, all these uh, strong unions just don't exist anymore. So the negotiation isn't there. The only way you get a wage rise is if there's such labour shortage, uh, for whatever reason at the moment it's the pandemic, um, that employers are willing to outbid each other to offer, high, offer higher wages. But yeah. the moment the pressure is gone, they'll, rever- they'll reverse that bid. Um, so you don't have the same permanence of wage rises hitting into well, it's, inflation it's, anymore. It's, yeah, well, inflation has to keep on rising, of course, doesn't it? Because it's uh, so pr- prices can go up, and you can have high inflation. Then it can level off, and then you've got zero inflation. So I mean, that that could happen with jobs, couldn't it? Because lots of people lost their jobs, and now there's lots of people out of work, and there's demand for those people. So employers are having to pitch for them. And we all know if you work for the same company all your life, like my brother, I've got a great classic example. I've got uh, you know mm-hmm. one, one brother who just worked for the same company all his life, and he hardly ever got any pay increases mm. whereas you know in my career uh you know when it was uh, when it was blossoming <laughs> all those years ago <laughs> i'd go from one job to another and get 50 percent more because mm. you know because i'd done well in the last job and i knew if i'd stayed mm. in that job they'd go oh you've done well here's three percent but if you go and apply for another job you you step up the ladder so people are doing that now i think aren't they but that's only again it's only a transitory thing so we're going to see wages go up because people are moving around and finding jobs and there's uh, the sectors where the demand is greater so they're going to uh, they're going to pay more but that'll i don't think those prices will go down those wages will go down pretty hard to tell someone that they're, you know they're going to have to take a pay cut but they're not going to keep on rising so infl- so wage push inflation will, will slightly reduce to zero but at the same time you're going to continue getting the supply chain disruptions i mean mm. you know, you, you, we're getting out of the covid one to some extent um, but you know this is just one of one of many coming away you're yeah. seeing like the brexit oil- one steve Ha uh-huh. uh, ha! Self-inflicted. Okay, <laughs> this is getting as bad as the bloody Australian property prices quite garbage to get back right. in Australia. But anyway, yeah, yeah, you're gonna. Um, we'll talk about that yeah. next next time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But but it's it's. What you knocked me off my bloody train of thought. Where was I going? We were talk- I was talking about wage push inflation, and you were talking about how, but yeah. we've, still, we've still got the supply constraints. So we've still got yeah, they'll still got the inflation. They'll come, they'll, they'll come on the on the on the on the, on the uh, both two things. Uh, climate change, but also mm. we're starting to see real shortages in physical minerals and in um, in energy. And this is yep. what's in it. What, what, the, the latter is known as the uh, Hubert Peak. That we've been we've passed the point of peak oil production conventional. We passed that at least twenty years ago. Uh, it looks like we're also past the peak of um, 
production of you know shale oil and and fracking and stuff like that as well so we're running out of supply of oil and you know oil is is essentially liquid energy and energy is by far the, the most essential input to production processes so you're finding that you now have to in terms of bidding to get hold of the energy and that's going to mean the oil prices rise but the impact overall is not that we're going to pay more and and consume the same volume we're going to pay more and consume less and therefore there'll be production shortages again which will turn up in you know price rises for parts of the economy but buy those outputs as inputs and the, and the people obviously are going to suffer the most are going to be the poor the less well off mm. because uh, a higher proportion of their income goes on those those basic commodities that we we all need to survive so uh monetary policy isn't going to help them obviously um so should should the government step in and support them should that be the focus now by stopping the impact of inflation hurting those people so if you're I guess I'm asking you this question, Steve. If you're a politician, perish the thought. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. If you're a politician, what <laughs> what would you do to tackle this issue where you've got inflation hurting the poor because of, for whatever reason? But in this case, it's because of those supply constraints. I'd be looking at a basic income, right? Because I mean, I've been, mm. I mean, I I uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in favour of the idea of a job guarantee as well. But I think a lot of this stuff presumes a continuation of the capacity to produce at the scale we have on the planet. Uh, for the last 50 years, and that isn't there anymore. Uh, you know, we, we're going to actually want to have some people not going to work because we want to reduce how much is being produced. We don't want people to starve to death because of it. So right, but isn't that, it, yeah. wouldn't that make inflation worse, though? That, you, because yeah, you, yeah could, quite possibly, yeah. Because uh, you'd be but producing you, even less, and so the demand for those... Yeah, I, I can't see any, any, any happy way out of this that results in a, in a return to the growth levels of the 50s and 60s. And I think it's what people are... People are you know, let's go back to growth as sort of the the backdrop here. Um, it, it is just too effed up a world uh, for that to be possible. But whatever so, you do, um, it sounds like you're going to have runaway inflation. So we've got we've got a shortage of supplies now because of because uh, the supply chains have all been broken. Mm. Uh, mm. You're saying, well, you know, on an ongoing basis, we have to get used to that. Then there's nothing there that's going to stop inflation. And so the, well, the, 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 the Fed is the, the Fed's there saying yeah. we've got you know the acceptable inflation rate of around two percent, possibly a bit lower. Uh, so I mean, first of all, where do they get that number from? Is there a magic number? Mm. And isn't mm. it because of those constraints that you're talking about? Uh, you know demand and supply constraints isn't that number just going to keep on rising well it it could what what i think you're going to see, see is a whole range of commodities that work have been, workers have been used to consuming middle class have been used to consume that gets priced out of their p- possibility of buying it and this was actually the impact of rising prices in the arabic countries we have what we call the arab spring uh, you know set off by a, a, a tunisian uh, market workers self-immolating over price rises, um, it, it's, it becomes impossible for ordinary people to buy you know, commodities they need to survive, things you know, in that situation, including you know, oil for heating, and, oil, and, 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 and therefore, bang, they went in a riot, and you finally had the political upheavals of the, um, uh, the, the 2010s and thereabouts in, the, um, in Arabic countries. So it's, it, it, it is... You, you, yeah, I don't think you can avoid that level of political conflict, unfortunately. It, it, it will manifest itself with inflation, but then those the commodities where it's becoming outrageously high and which are not essential items Demand will disappear from workers' shopping baskets. No. It's the ones that are left in there, and then you start seeing people getting you know, to the stage where what was their comfortable living becomes barely subsistence. Uh, then you're likely to see 
Yeah. The equivalent of the Arab Spring in the West. Or a, a Karl Marx revolution. <laughs> Maybe that's... Yeah, I know there's a lot of students. You know, the, the youth are sort of pro-socialism in a way that terrifies uh, the older cohort in America. And they're wondering why. So how does where we are now compare with the 1970s? Because obviously we had a fuel crisis in, in the 1970s. We had the three-day week and all that sort of stuff uh, with oil prices going through the roof. Uh, how, how does, uh, and obviously inflation uh, was rising as a result of that. How does where we are now compare with like back the, the, then? The, the thing about the 70s, the reason it scarred the minds of economists who both teach economics and make uh, economic policy these days, it was that they had the combination of of rising unemployment and rising prices. And that was supposed to have broken the belief in Keynes's model. They, allegedly, this was, couldn't happen in Keynes. What they meant was it couldn't happen in, in Phillips, which was the, the, the idea of the Phillips curve. And Phillips was an engineer. He wasn't stupid enough to be an economist. He was trying to reform economics. And he put together a, a, a model of prices, a model of the economy, which was a non-equilibrium um, supply, the stuff I build in Minsky. Yeah, He was doing it 60, 70 years ago. You know? And um, as part of that, he argued that when you had high demand, you would have high rate of change of what he called factor prices. And he meant both commodity prices, you know, uh, prices for machines, prices for wages, workers, all that sort of stuff. And then to make the case that this, for this, he actually literally drew it. Um, but being an engineer, having drawn something, he went to check and see whether it exists, unlike economists. Um, and he did a study of about 80 years of English data of the rate of inflation and the rate of change of money wages. And he then found exactly the sort of relationship he hypothesized. But what he said was there were three factors that he saw as leading to um, uh, changes in workers' wage demands. One was the level of unemployment. Second was the rate of change of unemployment. And the third was cost pressures due to supply shocks. Effectively, he's talking about imported goods, but fundamentally, with leading to a wage price spiral. That's actually, mm. literally those words are in, are in, in Phillips. Now, neoclassicals, A, don't read the bloody stuff. They read what's written in a textbook. They don't see that he said it was a nonlinear function. They use straight bloody lines. Uh, and they leave out the other two causal factors. Now, the reason that uh, that Phillips himself left those causal factors out is he was doing all the work on a bland, but he hand-operated calculator, and he had uh, he had annual data uh, for one country uh, on two time series, and even that was too much. They gave him about like 80 data points to key in. That was too much, so he simplified it by di- dividing the unemployment into seven ranges. So he had seven data points. Now, if you have, uh, if you're trying to cover undercover an underlying process, uh, which is extremely complex, you know, level of unemployment, rate of change of unemployment, and then uh, supply shocks coming in from overseas, and you have seven data points, <laughs> you can fit Winnie the Pooh to that if you have a three-dimensional. So he just fed it to the first and left the other two out of the of the statistics, but it was still in his thinking. Well, this has been completely degraded by neoclassicals over time. They made a caricature of, of Phillips's work, and that's what today drives their discussions around central boards, uh, central bank uh, board meetings. Yeah.
Yeah, and it's really, I mean, what they've done is they've not talked about a, a systematic approach at all, have they? They've taken a snapshot. It's the inflation rate and unemployment rate at any one point. So move one one way and the other one goes the other way. It's uh, Yeah, yeah. there's no dynamics to their thinking, whereas mm. uh, Phillips was quintessentially about modelling a dynamic process. Yeah. He, he made one ver- a verbal slip. He did argue that there was sort of a menu. You know, if you wanted 2%, <coughs> pardon me, uh, uh, un- un- uh, rate of inflation, you did a five percent rate of unemployment. You know, because you could choose uh, if you chose one, you chose the other along a, a, a trade-off line, and, and that was a slip of the tongue, which he shouldn't have made, uh, but mm. he did. And then uh, after he said, if he knew the way his work would have been treated, he would never have done it. And that is all the more complicated now for what we've been discussing in, in the last half hour. That supply is being mm. constrained. And so that throws another dynamic into into the whole equation, doesn't it? And that's that's a that's a global mm-hmm. phenomenon because if we look at uh, inflation around the world, it's hard. To, I mean, okay, there are there are periods when inflation was rising more or less in unison in in most of the developed world, but really everyone had their own peaks and troughs. This is really the first time I think that we've actually had inflation rising almost everywhere. I mean, you know, there's some countries which have managed to avoid it so far, uh, but it's because, of course, it is a global constraint on supply that we're seeing. Well, this is not so much that. I mean, the same thing applied in the 70s as well, but the difference is that the demand is more broadly spread these mm. days. So in the 1970s, you didn't have to worry about competitive competition from China uh, for supply of oil, okay? Uh, now yeah. you do. So it's it's it isn't so much a class struggle anymore. It's 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 become a a, you know, a country's struggle to make sure you get the resources uh, for your own people ahead of it. And I think this is this is going to signal more changes like this over time because uh, politically you, you got politicians answer to the people in their own country, and if it looks like their own people are going to be revolting over you know, shortages that mean that they don't have basic you know, essential commodities, then if you're the supplier of those essential commodities, you're likely to stop doing it. If you're a buyer, uh, you're likely to try to buy out the, the competition, if that's possible. So, um, yeah, it's it, it not, not exactly a stable system. Gee, I think we should abandon the use of the word equilibrium. What do you reckon? It sounds like, yeah. Well, I don't know why you've not mentioned it before. So the, uh, <laughs> let's, let, let's finish off where we start then. So we've got uh, central banks now talking about uh, easing off on their quantitative easing. So it, quantitative tightening, in other words. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a discussion for another day. But then doing that so that they can start lifting interest rates because of inflation. Uh, which obviously, you know, as we've explained, is is the wrong thing to do. Or mm. should they? So should they be keeping interest rates? Because I mean, they're doing damage with quantitative easing and mm. interest rates at zero or less than zero. I mean, surely it's going to be healthy for interest rates to. I mean, we've talked before. Interest rates almost should be fixed. You know, a couple of percent sounds like a good idea. Well, the funny thing is that, that there's actually a brilliant book on statistics called Data Reduction by a guy called Ehrenberg, uh, written way back in the 50s or 60s. I unfortunately lost it by lending to a student. I've never seen it since. I think I actually managed to find an online version. Um, anyway, uh, his, his, he took, a, as a statistician, looking at how badly economists had done uh, their own work on statistics, he took as an example of a constant, the interest rate. Right. He, he, he modelled... Um, Again, the changes according to distribution of income rather than interest rate as a control variable. Um, but the point is, it was it made, looking at the data, it made obvious sense for him to treat the interest rate as a constant because when he looked over time, it had been about 3%. Um, so the whole, the whole period of massively rising interest rates 
and, and high inflation. That is a distinctly post-World War phenomenon. Uh, it's something which you only see uh, happening sort of starting in the 60s and 70s. Um, but if you look, and, and, and we have had, we had no periods of deflation in America uh, before we hit the, uh, the Great Recession. And inflation went from plus five to minus two percent. But if you look back in the eight and not in the eighteen hundreds, you see patterns of inflation and deflation all the way through. Yeah. And uh, so, what you're saying is, it makes no difference. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got a bunch of yeah. predominantly middle-aged white men earning a handsome mm-hmm. salary, sitting in central banks all over the world, feeling like they're doing some uh, very important work, but actually they're probably doing nothing at all. Yep, pretty close. Actually, worse. <laughs> all right. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, look, uh, we'll uh, we'll catch you again next time. Good to talk, Steve. Okay. Okay. Bye. And yep. uh, next time, which will just be in a few days' time, uh, you might have heard that Steve is standing for the Senate in Australia. He's uh, standing for the New Liberal Party. Next time, uh, we'll find out why he's doing. What would possess him to enter the world of politics, and what do the uh, New Liberals stand for, and has he got a cat in hell's chance of being voted in? All of those questions and many more. Next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve King. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.